0: Lexicult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network.
1: Oh More than iron, more than lead, more than gold, I need electricity. I need it more than I need lamb, or pork, or lettuce, or cucumber. I need it for my dreams. That's by Rector from The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed, which is the first book of prose and poetry ever written by a computer. Hello and welcome to Lux Occult. This is the podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the latin, and most other languages and we also discuss a variety of occult topics. Exploring the intersections of magic, art, science, technology, and philosophy and so much more through the lens of chaos magic, it's occultism for everyone. I'm your host Lux Estrada. If you are hearing the sound of my voice right now, that means that this show and magic are for you, if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free in the world, and using magic or making space for a spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree with me sometimes. How would we ever learn anything if we all agreed all the time after all? And like anybody who attempts to be reasonable should be willing to do, I am willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. Alright, I'm super stoked to be sharing a couple of very fun conversations with y'all today. I spoke with Melissa Jane Madara about their new book, The Witch's Feast, a book delicious enough to fucking eat. It's a well-researched occult cookbook with all kinds of very fun and interesting things in it. As I've said before, are you erudite hedonism? Yes, please. I also spoke with Derek Hunter about his new book, The Divine Chaos, and why he chose Austin Osmond Spare to be his Virgil. That's going to be today's episode within the episode. We'll hear a little bit from Spare, as well as from the Great Beast, and from you, the listeners. And I will also read what has been yielded so far in the Green Mushroom Project's 23 Bibliomancy Experiment, our scripture. It's wild stuff. Before we get into it here, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to kick it with me and my guests here on the show. I'm super lucky to have such amazing listeners, collaborators, co-conspirators, fellow travelers, and what have you. Um, You all are indeed the best. Social media is sort of a lot for me, so I don't use it very much, but that certainly doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from you all, and I always welcome people's thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or arcane revelations. You can reach me at luxacultpod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Instagram at luxacultpod. And if you like the show and you're into what I'm doing, you can support it on Patreon. If you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me, and there are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. And thank you so much to everybody who's already doing that. Your support really makes a huge difference, and it makes the show possible, because there are some costs associated, so much appreciated. Thank you. Shout out to Fenris. Thanks so much for sharing about the cool experiences that you've had. So glad that you're enjoying your magical practice again. What you describe sounds sort of initiatory in nature. Very cool. We're going to be hearing some listener mail a little bit later on, as well as some other cool stuff. Shout out and a huge thank you to all the fungi propagators and administrators on the new Green Mushroom Project and Administrism server. Check out Administrism, one of the awesome shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. And shout out to Yara for showing me that cool book which I read from at the beginning of the episode. Things are going well as we get everything set up on the green machine, which is what we're temporarily calling the thing. So lucky to have such a solid team and a cool community on the server. Y'all are the best. I really appreciate having the chance to have such interesting conversations and to see all the cool shit y'all are up to. So special thanks to Frater Damiana for romancing the robots into our coterie and just generally fucking crushing it as we get things set up. He also made us our new uterus as imagined in the Greek magical papyri emoji, complete with fangs so that it might tear into the heart like a dog, if not cajoled by a spell to gain its ascent. Sometimes the ancients get a little bit too much credit i'm just saying (laughs) if you'd like to come debate me about that or to just hang out and talk about chaos magic occultism gardening gaming or assorted weird bullshit or to come participate in our book club or other cool activities like voice chats esoteric games and online rituals hit me up and i will get you an invite to our discord server as of the time of this episode it's still a private server but we can get you an invite Much love and mush love to everybody participating in the Green Mushroom Project, regardless of what that looks like for you in your practice. All right, so I'm so excited to share today's conversation with you all. I'm not going to uh, delay it too much longer. I'm going to be back during a break to say what's up and to share a cool track and some poetry snacks, as well as some other fun tidbits and stuff. But now, let's get into it here's my conversation about the witch's feast and edible occultism with melissa jane madara melissa hello thank you so much for joining me today i'm so excited to be talking with you
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm super pleased to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for a while, been super enjoying it. And so, you know, it's glad to be glad to be a guest now.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, I've been really enjoying looking over your work. So if you wouldn't mind letting the audience know a little bit about yourself, what you are up to, what you're into and all of that good stuff.
2: Sure. uh, That that's going to be kind of a long list because I'm a triple air sign. And so I I tend to stay in motion and I'm usually pretty busy. I've got a lot of projects on my desk at all times. And that's kind of how I like to keep it. But most of people in the world probably know me through my book that just came out, The Witch's Feast, which is a, a cookbook that also talks about magic and the history of magic and culinary magic praxis. It's it's a really fun one. And there isn't, you know, a lot of other books out there in the world that are like it. Um, a lot of other people might know me through uh, being a co-owner at Catland Books, Brooklyn's little witch shop where I teach uh, and I run, you know, markets and I, you know, manage our garden and I produce our, our magazine, *Venefica* Magazine, which if you haven't seen it, you know, it's a great publication on like arts and a culture and and all that good stuff. Uh, and I run a little apothecary shop, Of uh, you know, my, my own little Etsy store called Moon Cold Herbs, where we do a lot of like natural herb craft and like, you know, magical, you know, plant magic things, uh, you know, incense, body oils, all that kind of stuff. So that's the swath of what I do. Uh, never a dull moment <laughs> in my life. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, all of it sounds very cool. And I just have to say the book is absolutely gorgeous. And there's so much cool info in there. Like not only are the recipes like really, really awesome looking, but like the background behind them just adds so much flavor uh, in the (laughs) metaphorical sense.
2: Thank you, you know uh, i'm I'm a huge nerd, uh, and I love that like nerdy historical stuff. Each one of those recipes I had so much fun just deep diving on, uh, and it was just such a shame that I wasn't able to put more in. My publisher had to cut me back so much for that book. Um,
1: <laughs> Oh, I wish I could
2: release like the unabridged version, which would be like 500 pages.
1: Ooh, well, I would love yeah. that. <laughs> I'm a huge nerd as well. <laughs>
2: Nick, love it. Nerd club.
1: Uh, fuck yeah. Okay, so the book is organized, it sort of contextualizes like looking at five facets of the occult through food. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown about these five facets and sort of how that fits into the structure of it?
2: Sure. Well, so the reason I did that is because kitchen witchcraft is kind of a clunky subject here in the modern world in that when you say it, it kind of doesn't mean anything, right? It's something that's been like really like watered down or, or rather it's actually something that never even existed before the last like 150 years. So the idea that we have of like what a kitchen witch is and what kitchen witchcraft is a very generalized maybe that's a way to put it where we're talking about you know taking existing magical frameworks like correspondence traditions and sympathetic magic and just putting food over it and just trying to make it fit somewhere Um, and through my research I just kind of determined that kitchen witchcraft historically hasn't worked that way it's kind of been something a little bit more organic and grassroots that shows up in various different aspects of magic whether we're talking about folk magic whether we're talking about devotional traditions whether we're talking about grimoire ceremonial magic kitchen witchcraft is there because food is there Um, and so I was thinking about how do you take something that's that big and nebulous and make it accessible to people who might not Already have an existing magical practice. Who might be coming at this just because they're interested in kooky history and they want to understand how magic works? And so I broke it down into five functional pieces that I think people would be interested in and that I think people would you know be able to tackle no matter what experience level they're coming from. The first one is going to be historical recipes. It's called Feast of the Ancestors, and it talks about people who have cooked and made magic in history, kind of giving us this inheritance of wisdom and information and ritual and tradition uh, that we we can now follow in their steps. So we look at a bunch of historical recipes that are super fun. Second chapter uh, is for the pop astrologers. It's a dinner and a dessert for each astrological sign. And so everyone gets their own, you know, two course meal. It's super exciting, fun for date nights, fun for birthdays. And we get to talk about correspondence traditions. We get to talk about astrological medicine. Uh, Chapter three is going to be planetary magic. So we get to talk about sympathetic magic and consecration and uh, planetary magic, I think is also a nice accessible way for people who might know a little bit about astrology, but not a lot about witchcraft to get into magic and to sort of understand Correspondence traditions, uh, which I think is like, you know, sympathetic magic is like easy enough for anybody to understand and kind of get into. There's no, you know, religious component, which I think throws people off. And then my fourth chapter is based around the solstices and the equinoxes. So we talk about eating within season uh, and what that looks like as part of like lifelong rituals of connecting to the land. And then the final chapter is just practical spell work. I think that's the chapter that most people. Want my entire work to be, uh, but so little of my practice is actually practical magic, uh, and so I don't know. It just felt like that was something that we could we could tuck at the end and make people get through all of the theory and the philosophy first, uh, you know, in order to arrive there.
1: Oh yeah, I love that, and I love that it's contextualized through food. Like I think that it's important so much of I think what people. Do in an occult practice is so cerebral. So, when we can like involve the body, bring that somatic component back into things, it really makes things a lot more whole. So, that's really cool. Hell
2: yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You know, for my personal work, I really don't use a lot of stuff in my magic. I'm someone who does a lot of like ancient Greek magic personally. And so, there's a little bit of incense, sometimes there's candles, but there's not a lot of like ephemera. There's not a lot of like objects and manipulations. There's mostly a lot of praying. So, it's weird that I find myself in this branch of magic. Magic that's so tactile and so uh, within you know mundane reality like kitchen witchcraft is it's very different from the kind of magic I normally do but it's super interesting I think for that reason
1: Hell yeah so I have to ask is there a favorite recipe of yours that you have in this book
2: Ooh, favorite for taste or favorite for it's very interesting
1: Ooh, I don't know. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't taste. like you know what? The audience won't be able to taste it. So let's go with interesting.
2: That makes sense. One of the recipes in the book actually contains my own ritual that I wrote just for the book. I don't normally do stuff like that because I don't really feel like magic works that way where I can give you, you know, a recipe and you can follow it and get exact results. I feel like there's Mm. a lot more nuance there. Um, So it's not something I normally do. But I threw this one out there. I was extrapolating on a Salem witch trials recipe, uh, which is a witch cake that was created so that you could feed it to a dog. And if the dog... Exhibited signs of witching, uh, then it was proof that witchcraft was really at play. Uh, but unfortunately, the original recipe uh, involves urine as an ingredient. And so that's not like, you know, something I want to use. So. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> i was like I, need to if I want to but it's not in the new official <laughs> like, we can't print that and i was just like well it's accurate <laughs> historically and they were like you need to do something else uh which was a good uh, so i i was like okay well i love this idea of creating a bake that gives us a simple yes no divination answer and so i go a completely different route and i have the reader consecrate a hazelnut and bake it inside of one of two scones that are made with the same dough that has a bunch of like divinatory ingredients in it uh, and all this and that and then the um, the querent will make their question they will bake both buns they will select one at random and discard the other chop it in half and if it has the consecrated hazelnut that's a yes and if it doesn't that's a no and it seems like a lot of work to make two scones just to get a yes no answer but maybe this is a ritual that you only save for really big questions uh, but I don't know it was it was interesting for me to think about like okay I like the technology of, of this spell but i don't like the uh method per se how do we rework it and rehack it uh and you know take this thing from the 1700s and make it modern so that to me is one of the more interesting parts
1: yeah that's very cool i love that thank you so when i read the recipe that was called crowley glacier rice or <laughs> something I this that oh no the thought of being on top of a mountain and then or eating something that crowley was involved in me. but then i read the recipe and i was like well this actually sounds very good and i might make it
2: <laughs> well, i think his most famous culinary recipe is the cakes of light right yes like- exactly oh, yeah well- supposed to eat them because they're gross uh well, i so, mean
1: I, I guess technically the biological
2: material is supposed to be inert but i mean it's still in there so. yeah, many thelamites <laughs> explain it to me that way it's still not something i'm gonna be eating you know? <laughs> many mites have, have comforted me and said oh no no it's not there anymore and i'm like that's nice uh so Crowley's not really known for his uh, tasty treats. Um, even though in his writings, he actually does have a number of recipes. And he talks about like, you know, when I get back to England, I want to introduce my recipes to the restaurants. Classic Crowley, you know, like I I think one of my best jokes in the book, which almost no one's going to catch is in that entry where I describe him as only a prominent ceremonial magician and like no other, it's like a big shade to describe... <laughs> Fancy, famous man once. Um, you yeah. forgot
1: about his illustrious poetry career. I, from what I heard, he always contextualizes himself first as a poet.
2: <laughs> so. Yes, and the theater and the recipes and everything that Crowley did. Um, so, he <laughs> put it as a chef, I guess is what I'm saying. But uh, he also describes that rice recipe as being very, very spicy. But when you read it, it's clearly like a like a British not you know traveled palate it's very, he's like here's a little bit of cardamom Ooh, too spicy uh, <laughs> and he talks about men in his group running out of their tent and eating snow because it was so spicy I'm just like, a little bit of ginger curly like calm down uh, but yeah that's a super fun one and it is a really tasty recipe I do give some suggestions if you want to adjust the spices for a more modern palate but it's nice to have one of his recipes it's not a magical recipe in any other way than it's created by you know one of the most Famous magicians who's ever lived, but it's still nice to present as like you know, magicians. They're just like us. They eat regular food.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, no, I love it. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, Crowley shade that that's gets gets cast on this show, so it's welcome here. Oh, <laughs>
2: okay. Yeah, you know who we're talking to. You know, he's fun. We used to have a, a life size cardboard cutout of Crowley. Uh, at Catland on loan from the Temple of Thelema in Brooklyn. So i definitely love hanging around with him, but- uh... Yeah,
1: and I have a lot of friends who are Thelemites and it's, you know, there's all kinds of interesting stuff there. Like no shade to people who are into Absolutely. that at all. It's just- uh... is
2: nothing if not interesting. I'll give him Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um. There,
2: yes. <laughs> Another thing which I found very
1: interesting um, was the ritual bread masks. No, masks are something that I love working with. And yeah, I'm actually working on completing one right now.
2: Awesome. Yeah, no, I love masks too. I think they're a really interesting occult technology. Uh, I, I think they're one of my favorite, you know, ritual objects, if you want. And so bright masks are something that I had seen an artist do a while ago, but I was wondering if there was any historical precedence to that. So in my research, I was like, wouldn't it be cool if there is? And there's a little bit, not much. Bread masks are apparently a thing in Germany uh, in fashion celebrations or, you know, in wintertime, they have the carnival, uh, which everyone puts on these scary, horrifying wooden masks. And it's one of those winter ceremonies where the purpose is to, you know, chase out the negative energy of winter before the coming spring by wearing all of these scary costumes, kind of like a Halloween in springtime sort of thing. A lot of Eastern European countries do this and Germany as well. And so the one example that I found of bread being used specifically is in the Bernegger Brotfesser who are these, uh, you know, it's like a fool's guild. They're still operating in Bodneg and they make these like custom bread masks to fit their faces that they like cover in veneer and they last forever. They keep it as like a family heirloom. They're really... Terrifying to look at. Do not Google Bernegger Bratfesser. It is, uh, it's really like children of the corn. Like not the uh, bread masks are not pretty, but definitely you know serves the purpose of the ritual. I guess. But yeah, those were super interesting. And so I just thought you know again, how do we modernize this for an audience that's not in Germany participating in like you know midwinter celebrations? And so I was thinking about you know masks as ritual tools and bread as like. The, the substance that's given over and over again in a lot of different magical traditions as being just sort of like this sacred helper substance to the human species. Mm-hmm. And how like anytime you're creating anything in magic, there's a tradition somewhere that makes it out of bread. And so <laughs> it just felt like such a natural addition to me. You know, I see bread candlesticks. I see bread uh, sculptures of goddesses and gods in the ancient world. There's, you know, anytime there's magical technology, people are making it out of bread somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. And I guess it has to makes sense from a sort of like anthropological standpoint i mean in terms of like agriculture being so important to us and all of that yeah very cool
2: Right. Yeah. Bread is like the culmination of a lot of agricultural mystery, right? we It's not just that you've germinated the plants and you've reaped your harvest. But then this was one of the first things in human culture where we actually took it a self step further and created something that was even more nutritious and even better for us. It's a substance that's been with us since, you know, the first civilizations were settled. Bread is incredibly important to human society and we see it pop up in magic Everywhere in the world, everywhere that people are eating bread, they're putting it in their witchcraft or making ritual tools out of it, or you know anything like that. It follows us everywhere we go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to comment too. In addition to bread, beer or beer adjacent drinks are very much in line here too, because of alcohol purifying the water or keeping it a little bit more sanitary and stuff. So yeah, that's very cool. Thank you. So. I wanted to ask you about the, I'm trying to remember, was it a quiche? It has the satyr square on it, which I loved the idea of like consuming this protective talisman.
2: Yeah, totally. Oh, my youngest cat's going to start screaming. I'm sorry. No worries.
1: Cats are welcome. (laughs)
2: Yeah. uh, She likes to do this thing where she just takes her favorite toy and screams as she carries it from room to room. So it's that time. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, the Seder Square Harvest Pie is such a fun recipe. So it's a harvest pie. It's got a bunch of vegetables baked inside. It's like a chicken pot pie, but no chicken. It's meant to be a kind of like a fall time dish because that's the time of the year that you find a lot of like big protection rituals coming out in European magic. And the Seder Square is at its most basic interpretation a protective symbol or protective talisman. And there is, believe it or not, historical precedence for eating it. Uh, I was so excited to find that in medieval France they would write the. Same Seder square on crusts of bread, and they would feed it to people who were no longer themselves. Maybe they were drunk, or they were having a panic attack, or a psychotic break, or they even list rabid dogs as being, you know, people they would use it on. But if you weren't being yourself, and you needed to be returned to your right mind, you would eat the Seder square bread. So they do eat it, which is interesting.
1: Fascinating. So maybe we should give a little bit of context for people that like aren't familiar with the Seder square. Could you talk just a little bit about the little bit of history there?
2: Sure. Yeah. If you've never seen it before, picture a five by five square and it says the word Seder in the top five boxes uh, and then a rapo Tenet, rotus or Opera, Rotas. Uh, so that, you know, on the top it says Seder, on the bottom it says Rotas. The same words are repeated in multiple directions so that th- there's a lot of, you know, repeating of the words. It's, it's basically called a magical word square. We see this pop up in pre-Christian traditions. We see this pop up, uh, you know, in church architecture. We see it pop up in pennsylvania dutch folk magic on american soil the symbols everywhere Uh, and so the origins are a little bit murky but by and large it's believed to be used as a protective symbol there's many interpretations of how of of how it's translated one of the more popular ones is as you sow so shall you reap and so uh, it it kind of reads to me as a charm that kind of reflects negative intentions back where they go almost like like primitive evil eye charms you know Uh, Mm -hmm. something that's like not apotropaic magic necessarily, but definitely, you know, averts evil. That's that seems to be how it works. That's at least my understanding of the Seder Square. Okay, fuck
1: yeah, thank you. Of course. So another thing that I really loved was your Hecatian Deepnan. This is some it's I actually don't do the tradition in the same way as you describe, but I do follow um, you know, a little thing that of my own that I do that I make a deafnon. So I was so excited to see it in the book.
2: Oh yeah, no, that one's one of my favorites. And that one actually is a quiche. And I also don't do the Devnon in the traditional way. I definitely don't clean my house, which is totally what <laughs> to do. Uh but I I'll clean my house when I want to. I'm like a cate. Yeah. You know, uh, I definitely do the meal every month. That's that I totally do. But I don't always make that quiche. That quiche to me is like if I'm doing a big ceremony and I want to take all of the kate's accepted offerings and put them into one dish, that's what I came up with. Her Her most accepted offerings traditionally in Greece are going to be, you know, eggs, leeks, garlic, you know, some other stuff like, you know, dog meat that we're not going to put in there, but those three um, <laughs> I really thought were very exemplar or they really exemplified her. And even like the idea of like a little cake is something that would have been offered to her, you know, traditionally in ancient Greece. So, to make a quiche and then serve a slice of it, you know, not not necessarily the whole thing, but a, a sizable portion would be totally fine for Depnon and would be again, it's something that's in keeping with tradition but has been adjusted for a modern practitioner. But I mean, it hits all the traditional points, it does what it needs to do.
1: And it sounds absolutely delicious.
2: Thank you. I originally wanted to make uh, Hecate's wheel, the stropholos on top of that quiche in the charred leeks. And then I started doing it. And I was like, Oh, no, that's hard. Uh, so instead, there's just like three lines. It's <laughs> a char-
1: difficult figure to drive. Try to several times and it's hard it sometimes. Yeah, and then to, yeah i can only imagine trying to configure it with leaks yes,
2: so there was greater ambition but uh yeah you know, someone else can make that one if someone is so inspired
1: <laughs> yes well uh, that sounds amazing thank you so would you like to take a bibliomancy break melissa
2: absolutely yeah um is this something you do in all your episodes right
1: Yes, yes, this is a break time tradition. I like to uh, break out the books and see what we can find
2: out. I love it.
1: Hey, what's up? It's me, Luxa from the future. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Melissa so far. It was super fun talking with them. I think you can hear how excited I am about it all in the recording. (laughs) We're going to be getting back to that bibliomancy break in just a moment here, but first I wanted to give an update about what we're going to discuss there, as well as to share a music track and a poetry snack. So Melissa let me know that the book launch went well last week, but at one point a dog leapt up on the pastry table, and the reason I'm sharing this with you will make sense to you once you hear the bibliomancy break. Okay, so here is a poetry snack for you. I know there was some shade being cast, so I figured, why not invite the ghost of the notable ceremonial magician himself, Aleister Crowley, on to share some of his verse? This is an oath written during dawn meditation. I was, confirm my toth with thee, my will inspire with secret sperm of subtle, free, creating fire. Mold thee my flesh as thine, renew my birth, in childhood merry as divine, enchanted earth. Dissolve my rapture in thine own, a sacred slaughter, whereby to capture and atone the soul of water. Fill thou my mind with gleaming thought, intense and rare, O one refined, outflung to naught, the world of air. Most bridal bound, my quintessential form thus freeing from self, be found when selfhood blent in spirit being. Okay, (laughs) thank you. That last part was quite challenging to say. I hope you enjoyed. I'm going to go ahead and play a track for you that a buddy of mine who prefers to remain anonymous made, which was produced in a sort of ritual context. Art and creative endeavors can be a really enjoyable and effective way to gain more access to your own magic. As you listen to this track, perhaps some idea or potential project will begin to bubble up to the surface of your awareness from the depths of wherever these things arise. I'll include a link in the show notes to this track in case you'd like to revisit it. Many thanks to its creator for allowing me to include it. Um, We're going to be diving back into my conversation with Melissa Madaro for more edible occultism, and we'll also hear from Derek Hunter of Love Chaos a bit later about what he's got on the horizon. But first, here's Anja. fuck yeah let's hop into that bibliomancy break so the way this works is i will have you ask a question and then if you have polyhedral dice on you which is totally okay if you don't i will roll them for you if you don't have them um we'll figure out what book. sorry (laughs) (laughs) no worries we'll figure out like what book to use and then we will receive the insight of eris
2: yes love it okay cool
1: All right. Do you have a question for the Oracle?
2: (laughs) I do. Yes. So uh, my book launch was delayed because of COVID. And so after almost a full year, we are finally launching my book first week in October. And I would like to know how that is going to go.
1: All right. Well, that's very exciting. All right, it's going to be from the Bible. <laughs> Classic answer here. Yeah. Right, oh, me... for an Satanist, there is no better text. Bring it <on. laughs> You know that, yeah, it's so funny. The next book on the list is the Satanic Bible. So... <laughs> the Bibles together, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the, the, yes, it's organized into different tables. With Yes, but this is the Bible <laughs> table. <laughs> so let me find it. I will be right back here. Sure, sure. All right, I have located this text. I've got here in my hands the Hebrew-Greek Key Study Bible, New American Standard. Okay, hello, Eris. How will Melissa's book launch go? (laughs) This could get dark. (laughs) (laughs) By man and unintelligent sound by animals or inanimate objects, the two contra words are logos in italia logos where it refers to discourse is regarded as the orderly thinking and knitting together in connected arrangement of words of the inward thoughts and feelings of the mind good that's good yeah i feel like that's good for that seems positive if i feel like what's happening here is words are being used to communicate ideas and it's That's what a book is. That's what a book is. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, (laughs)
2: Iris. It also mean like my other interpretation might be uh, that like my idea for the event will be well translated to the audience. Mm. Uh, That the you know the concept will be pulled off. That will communicate it. Yeah. Or the unintelligible braying of animals. I was like, that's not part of it. i have to book a cow now. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: maybe somebody will have their uh, service animal or something. We never
2: know. (laughs) If they do, I'll call you immediately. I'll tell you how.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a good time that I like to ask my guests about their relationship with divination and if they have a divinatory practice that they'd like to share about
2: yeah um I've got a strange relation to divination uh, so I have my personal divination practice and it's also something that I do for work and those two parts of my life look completely different I do have a tarot practice that I've had most of my life my mother was a tarot reader not for hire uh, but you know I learned a little bit through her I actually got her deck uh, first that was my first working tarot deck oh, and I've very been working cool. with the Aquari- yeah thanks I work with the Aquarian tarot now and have for like a million years it's like a nice workhorse of a deck. And you're an air sign, so that kind of fits for you, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I picked it up like on a trip in Philly, and I fell in love with that Art Deco watercolor, you know, design. And yeah, as an air sign, I find it to be a very chatty deck, which I appreciate. And for my personal practice, I do some other methods of divination. Um, I love scrying. Scrying is something I've done for years. It's something I have done for hire, but I don't enjoy it. Um, I do a little bit of tea leaf reading. Um, I do a little bit of capnomancy. I feel like once you start scrying, scrying, using other media becomes really easy. And then it's like, yeah, I can throw flour in the air and divine on that. And I can, you know, all this other stuff. So I really like the freeform media version of scrying, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I like to do with my breakfast magic is to scry in the egg as it cooks, you know, and just sort of it's yeah, you're right. I and mean, it's kind of just um, a mode of thought that you can enter and, and any medium can can be a translator. At least this, this is how it feels for me.
2: Completely. Yeah. My first experience scrying was actually on the tops of cocktails, believe it or not, like a shaken cocktail in a coupe glass, how it gets that Love little bit that. of foam on top. Yeah, uh, that was the first way that I started to do it. And by the way, your eggs and my cocktails. This is Kitchen Witchcraft. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in your tarot practice, I would like to ask people who are into tarot, are there any like archetypes that you kind of identify with or like that come up for you a lot?
2: Whenever I think about archetypes in the tarot, I always think about this thing that uh, the old owner of Catland, Phil English, I think it was, said to me years ago, maybe he was giving me a reading and maybe we were just drinking and talking about witchcraft, but uh, he flipped over the Queen of Wands and he was like, everyone wants to be the Queen of Wands. Everyone wants to be her. And it, it was at the moment I was like, she's not even the most high ranking card. Like, why is that the one that everyone wants? But the more I learn about the tarot archetypes, the more I realize that she's really the most like powerful and like self-sovereign archetype in the deck maybe like just under the high priestess and I, every time I flip it that always runs through my head I'm like everyone wants to be the queen of wands I just think of her as like the cool girl of the tarot she is a boss absolutely absolutely with her little black cat. I'm like you know what I want to be the queen of wands <laughs> Fuck yeah, I
1: love that okay so I'm kind of curious If you could ask anybody, maybe from history or nowadays or whatever, to dinner, who would you ask and what would you prepare for them and why?
2: Yes, we were talking about this earlier. I'm going to have to think about what I would prepare for her, but... My friend Will Kiesel, who runs Oribar's Press uh, out in Seattle, gifted me and a couple of other friends, uh, like a couple of years ago, I think during the pandemic, some prints of Cleopatra's Chrysopoeia. So this is Cleopatra the alchemist from, you know, uh, ancient Greek. She's the first person to ever create an alembic. So she's the first person to do distillation um, and like alchemy using a still. So from her we get all distilled things like alcohol, fine spirits, gin, essential oils, hydrosol. She's created a really awesome thing. And the fact that she creates this, I mean, she's doing alchemy in a world where there are no alchemical tools. She's creating the first ones and she's got this kind of intuitive sense of working with chemistry where, you know, I'm very cognizant and all the time in my magical work, especially in my herb craft work, of my position in history and how much I stand to inherit from herbalists and people who came before me and how much wisdom and research has been done. And I'm always learning from that. And I always think about, you know, Cleopatra the alchemist in this, you know, BC world, figuring it out just from watching how matter works so i'd love to pick her brain over dinner that'd be incredible no idea what i would cook this woman (laughs) i think i could impress her in any sense
1: perhaps you could impress her with a um, mixed beverage of some
2: kind (laughs) probably make her something that she would never have had in ancient greece like a cherry pie or something like or like a root beer float like just like what? What would you? What would really rock your world, Cleopatra? Strawberry <laughs> ice cream, you know, like something she dip and dots, like something she would never <laughs> have in <laughs> ancient Greece. I'd do that for her.
1: I really <laughs> love the idea of Cleopatra eating dip and dots.
2: <laughs> but- <laughs> so somehow she's got all this wisdom, and I'd be like, "Would you like some dip and dots? <laughs> futuristic food, all those tornado potatoes, you know, just blow her mind."
1: Absolutely. So I was hoping that we could get into a little bit of the process that went into writing this and putting this together. And I'm sure like building these recipes through, I'm guessing, maybe a process of experimentation or whatever it was. I'd love to hear a little bit of background about this.
2: Sure. Yeah. I think the more the interesting bit happens on the research side, because I'm going to admit something on this podcast that I haven't openly admitted anywhere (laughs) All right, spill it. <laughs> the exclusive, which is that I totally went into writing my book thinking kitchen witchcraft was something totally different than it was. Mm-hmm. And I came out the other side of the research realizing that it is nothing. It has never existed. No one ever called themselves <laughs> a kitchen witch. It's ju- But it's just something organic. It's something that humans can't stop doing because we love doing magic and we love eating food and the like just those are the two primary parts of the human experience and we can't separate them from human culture but i went into it thinking that there was going to be some lineage or some tradition for me to pull from and i there was nothing. Um, no matter how hard I looked, no kitchen witchcraft kitchen witchcraft or kitchen witches have ever existed. And so the research was hard but exciting. Anytime I found something, it really felt like I was making a discovery. And I was showing these little pieces to my other occult friends. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, there's this alchemical book that has alchemical candy in the back of it. Or didn't you know there's a, a hummus recipe and the Picatrix? And suddenly everyone knows these weird little recipes that are ferreted away in all these little books but no one has a sense of what kitchen witchcraft is or or how it works or what that's going to mean and so i feel like this is the first time that a lot of that research has been presented as like here's kitchen witchcraft as something that's a legitimate occult technology it's not just us going stir your tea witter shins to cleanse your whatever it's got more historical precedent than that got a little bit more tradition behind it it's got uh, uh, in my head more bones than that uh, so that part was really exciting it was a completely different experience than I thought I was going to have it was a harder book to write than I intended but the the recipe stuff yeah I mean I was blessed to write the book during the pandemic so I had the pleasure of being locked in my tower and no one needed me and I could just write and so I would write and then I would cook and I would write and I would cook and I would do that from 8 a.m to 1 a.m and that was my day uh, and so it, <laughs> Like I said, when I was uh, you know done with the book and all the cooking and the writing, I did not generate content or cook my own food for like three months. I lived on like toast and takeout and I just, I couldn't bear it, but uh but it was great and it was you know i had actually fallen out of cooking and culinary work for like 7 years before i reapproached the book i was a pastry chef before and then i left the industry because it's a hard industry to stay in and went into the book selling game cuz you get to have weekends so i'd really put the chef stuff down and i hadn't really seriously cooked in a while and it felt great to come back to that and especially to come back to it when i'm not in that oppressive you know, professional kitchen environment. It, it was just such a, a wonderful experience through and through. A really hard labor, but a really wonderful experience.
1: Very cool. Fuck yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like you had mentioned that you had sort of learned a little bit about tarot and maybe like inherited some of your tarot practice from from your mom. Is there people in your family that you've inherited your cooking practice from?
2: Uh, you know, not my mom. Uh, I love her to pieces. but. Uh, <laughs> She she's not a cook. Um, She actually has learned to cook as she's gotten older. But I just remember in my childhood, her like almost burning the house down, trying to make box lasagna. So there were not a lot of like models for cooking in my childhood. My grandmother cooked, but, uh, you know, always in this way where like no one's allowed to be in the kitchen. So it's very esoteric, like to be able to see what's actually happening and get a window into what she's actually doing is kind of a mystical thing. And my father cooked a little bit, but, you know, just uh, at home, you know, so it was something I came to on my own because I wanted a form of artistic expression actually the first time I ever like cooked something for myself was because I was 13 and a guy had dumped me and I was sad and I needed to do something about it and I made a peach pie which if you've ever done is actually very very hard to do well very hard yeah very hard to do well and it came out perfect and after that I was like no one can touch me I will cook forever my heart is impervious like I was I like I
1: love kidding. that dude fuck yeah <laughs> actually th- and then you mentioned this just a second ago the the recipe from
2: the Picatrix the hummus to heal a broken heart if I recall correctly yeah I uh, could have used that one totally uh, <laughs> but the peach pie did the trick yeah and that was my introduction into it and I love the tactileness of it. I love watching the chemistry happen. And, you know, we were talking earlier about um, Cleopatra the Alchemist and that sort of intuitive sense about what matter is doing um in the occulted part of it in the parts of matter that we can't see that stuff's very very interesting and in cooking it's one of the only mundane places where regular people get to interact and play with chemistry in a, in a tactile way so i don't know that's what kind of got me into it i've always been very interested in chemistry and interested in what is going on behind what we can see so i, I think cooking held a lot of that allure for me when i was young
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense So how did you first like get started on this book?
2: Oh, this book, you know, I was a little lucky, luckier than other authors, my publisher reached out to me, Uh, they had seen an article that I had done with Vice on Kitchen Witchcraft many, many years ago. And they were like, hey, if you ever want to expand on that concept, we've got a book deal for you. And I sat on that for a few years and chewed on it until I really had enough knowledge and wisdom behind me to to answer that properly and you know that's how it all came together i was really happy to be working with watkins publishing they're you know a nice spiritual publisher out of the uk they're great same one as watkins books if you're familiar with it in london they're a nice like witchy bookstore uh and i've loved working with them it was it was a wonderful project uh we're working maybe on something new uh which we'll announce when the time comes but there might be there might be more coming up from me and watkins
1: Okay, very cool. So (laughs) you mentioned that, like, for you, cooking really is about having this creative outlet and sort of, like, expressing yourself through these ingredients and, like, how they play together and everything. I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) but um, I'm, I'm wondering, like, I kind of contextualize, you know, the creative process as being very adjacent or maybe even like overlapping with the magical process? Do you think that there's something just inherently magical in preparing food? Or is it something that we need to put intention into to make it magical?
2: That's a that's that's like so many questions in once. I love it. So- <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> it's a really, really good one. It's so juicy. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, have that question, but don't know how where to get at it. So, yeah, there's something to be said for creative work and magical work. You know, this is there's nothing scientifically verifiable about this, but I think it's true. Coming from the same part of the psyche, activating the same parts of the mind. And I think that those parts have a lot to do with poesis have a lot to do with uh, the ways in which humans create meaning uh, and and create something new when they do that. Even though we're working with, you know, potatoes and, you know, greens and bread and stuff that already exists, when we put it together and we, you know, do to it what we do to it through cooking, uh, we create something new and new meaning is created. I mean, that's true of art, that's true of film, that's true of music, and it's true of any creative endeavor, you know, cooking, of course, included. But I don't think that that means that there's anything inherently magical about cooking. You know, like when I uh, am home heating up a can of SpaghettiOs, this is not a ritual magical act. I think that when we assume the mantle of witch or magician or whatever it is that you want to call yourself, when you enter into the magical consciousness, everything that is mundane about your life kind of fades away. And everything that's left is just magical or rather your mundanity becomes suffused with a magical perspective such that nothing is ordinary anymore. So, you know, the potatoes and the greens and all that stuff, they're not magical in and of themselves. The only thing that makes... A kitchen, a kitchen witch's space is the presence of the kitchen witch and the perspective through which they're engaging with the material. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes
1: perfect sense. Thank you. And that was very well stated. I love it.
2: Well oh, good, I'm so glad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I love also that you brought up poesis because it made me think of like the sort of process of maybe like, making like a stew or something and like adding these herbs and like you know these volatile organic compounds volatilizing and you smelling these like smells and these things are sort of (laughs) unfolding before you and like yeah i just love that
2: yeah you know there's a there's an alchemist who lives in New York City who I love very much His name is Brian Cotmore and he has he just put out his big alchemical book a few years ago which bless him it 's a wonderful book and it 's called the Poetry of matter and I just the title alone to think of alchemy as a poetry of matter I, I think of witchcraft very much as a poetry of matter of, of like a, a seeking out and sucking out the deeper meaning of just the sort of stuff that is around you it 's a way of taking that poesis. And putting it over the mundane such that new reality and new possibility is created. So yeah, I always think about his poetry of matter, you know, phrase as, you know, describing that for me.
1: Very cool. I love that. Hey, what's up? It's me, Luxa from the future. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you are enjoying the episode so far. There are so many fun tidbits in Melissa and I's conversation. Later on, Melissa will share with us some thoughts about crafting one's own incense and some of the cool events that are occurring at Catland Books. We're also going to be hearing from Derek Hunter soon about his new book, The Divine Chaos, and why he chose Austin Osmond Spare to be his guide through the afterlife. But first, let's get into a bit of listener mail. okay first off addressing the question asked in the last listener mail segment about what people thought of the listener mail segment here's what some folks had to say josh said that they're not sure if i was serious about wanting people to weigh in on the listener mail segment but if i were they would give it their stamp of approval thank you josh i was indeed serious much obliged ricky wrote in to let me know that he also likes the idea of a listener mail segment thank you so much ricky appreciate the input And I appreciate your indulging me in what might seem like a sort of demented exercise in recursivity. Cheers! In regard to the question asked in the last episode featuring Adel Soto and Loki Lumerian about if any of you have a memento mori that you keep, Andy writes in to say, My memento mori is called a hog's tooth. H-O-G stands for hunter of gunmen. This item is given to U.S. Marine Scout snipers when they pass the final test of sniper school and are able to drink a beer with their instructor. It's a 762 hollow-tipped boat tail round with a hole drilled in it and a string through it so it can be worn around your neck. And it represents the bullet that's meant to take your life. So I didn't make the connection of a memento mori until hearing the episode, so that's cool. I've been out of the military for more than 10 years and I still wear it on a gold chain. Alright, so very cool stuff that's pretty... Fucking metal, actually. (laughs) I guess literally and figuratively. Boo. Alright, and in regard to the question of what the audience members would like to be called collectively, Abercadaver writes in with a suggestion that luxist sounds pretty good, leaning on minimalism. So I kind of like this. Having luxist ideologies sounds like something that might have gotten you put on a list or locked up in the 1950s or whatever. Thank you so much to everybody who wrote in for Listener Mail, whether or not your communique was on this one or not. Uh, Appreciate the input as always. So thank you very much. All right. So now let's take a little side tour here and visit the episode within the episode in which Derek Hunter and I talk about his new book, The Divine Chaos, and sort of what went into writing that and putting that together and some of the influences that are involved. All right, cheers. Let's get into it here. All right, well, hell yeah, I am here with Derek Hunter. Derek, how are you?
3: Hey there, great, excellent, very, very cool. Just happy to be here talking with you again.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for returning.
3: Yeah, just very 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 excited to be talking about this stuff today.
1: Fuck yeah. Well, so you've got a bunch of writing that's going to be coming out. You've been quite busy, and I'm so excited to hear about all that.
3: Yes, I have been, and a lot of the output is we'll I'll go into it in more detail but is is based on work that I had been writing for the last 10 years so the output has been has been prolific but it's been writing that I've been working on for a long time
1: Oh yeah so tell me about what is on the horizon here
3: Well what's on the horizon it has to do with what I've been in the middle of doing in terms of this project I've been working on for about 10 years basically 2012 I had published my first three books together which was the novel called I, which was a book that was inspired by Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And I wanted to do kind of an inversion of his tale in my own way. Then I did a collection of short stories called Black Light, White Dark, and, um, which were stories about people living in LA, about 18 different short stories. And then I wrote a very autobiographical novel called Life, and which was about my, my life as a young man in my 20s leading up to the birth of my son. So those books I'd been working on since my 20s, and then I, I released in my, my mid-30s. And uh, around that time, I was like, I really liked the idea of doing basically what I did with Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, take an old story that I really liked, but I saw that my philosophical vision was different from. So like, Dostoevsky is, a, is, is considered like a, an existential Christian or Christian existentialist, however one wants to put it, but basically he, he's a Christian. And and I'm not. And I love his work. I love his writing. Uh, I think he's one of the greatest writers who ever lived. But I kind of wanted, I like that story of crime and punishment, and I just wanted to do it a different way. So uh, another author who I love dearly, probably even more, is James Joyce. And uh, he did something similar with Ulysses. So Ulysses, for a, a lot of people listening here, probably familiar with the book he wrote, which was published in 1922, uh, which was, it was a, a modernist version or take on the ancient Greek story by Homer, which was the Iliad and the Odyssey. So the Odyssey was about Ulysses' journey back to Ithaca from after the Trojan War. And so Dreams Joyce took that structure of the story of Ulysses and turned it into a story about a guy called Harold Bloom, which is an average Jewish-Irish gentleman who lived in Dublin in 1904. And it's about his, uh, his, quote unquote, adventures throughout the city of Dublin in one day. And it's also other, a lot of other characters, too. One who's an autobiographical character of James Joyce. But um, anyway, he, he did basically kind of like a modernist version of a, of a classic literature. And I like the idea of that. So, and and I've always loved the quest for the Holy Grail and there's various different versions of the quest for the Holy Grail and different tales. And my favorite was Aschenbach's, a German poet writer of the 13th century who wrote uh, Parzival, which was one of the the knights of the round table. And he was young, naive, idealistic. And he's the one who found the the Holy Grail. And so Parzival is about his adventures. And then I also liked, uh, loved uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, is another great work of literature, which I loved. And then, of course, uh, the uh, the Faust legends, uh, which have been done many times by different writers. Christopher Marlowe did it in around Shakespeare's time, a play. But the most famous was the, the Goethe version uh, that he wrote, and, and, and he wrote two parts, uh, one towards the early part of his career and one at the very end. But the first part was written in, I believe, before the turn of the century, around 1800. And uh, that's definitely my favorite But in in all three of these cases, these are stories that I loved, but I I definitely did not um, gel with them philosophically. So I I, I wanted to do kind of like my own version of all three of these stories. And I'd actually been thinking about that since my teens. Like I I liked them for a long time, but I didn't really get started in terms of the actual writing process until about 2012. And I had different versions of the stories and they changed many times over the years until finally I had published Black which was a collection of all three stories in one book, but the first part of it. So I wanted to do like a a trilogy, which was the three different stories, all of them together from book to book. So basically told episodically. So it would be one chapter would be about the story based on the Ashenbach's Parzival story. The next chapter would be about the story based on Dante's Divine Comedy And the next chapter would be based on the story based on Faust. And so this would be going, you know, alternating from chapter to chapter, from one story to the next. That book, first book, Black, came out in 2018. Then I wrote some books about my philosophy of love chaos in 2019, 2020. And uh, then I got back into the trilogy in 2021 with the second book in the trilogy called White. And then this year in 2022, I completed the trilogy with a book called Red. So all three stories were told from book to book together and completed in the summer of this year. And so what I wanted to do was to turn those three, three different stories into three separate novels. And so that's what I've been doing these last few months. Uh, just released the second story, the second novel, The Divine Chaos, which is based on Dante's Divine Comedy uh, yesterday. And then last month I released the first story, first novel, called parzival and then so the next month will be the release of the novel faust so that's what i've been working in working on in the middle of and and what's on horizon on the horizon will be the final book of this whole project i've been working on which will be uh faust next month
1: all right very cool fuck yeah so i know that we've talked a little bit about surrealism and your sort of like relationship with it these books are written in like a surrealistic style is that right
3: yeah. So I think um, surrealism has definitely been a, a huge influence on me. I, I like in mean, going back to not only surrealist writing, but su- surrealist cinema and art, of course, too, just in terms of the plunging the depths of the human psyche in ways where you can't explain it with literal or naturalistic prose writing style. So in terms of surrealism, uh, I, I I don't necessarily would claim to claim myself to be a surrealist because uh, I wouldn't claim in terms of any way of being like a, I am a surrealist, but certainly surrealism has been a big influence on me for sure. And I think for surrealism, for me in terms of of writing, is a way to tap into my own subconscious and uh, and see what's there and uh, and to express it through words and basically to place the the viewer. I mean, not the viewer, the reader. In a position where you you, it it almost basically forces them to experience the story in that way where they are taken out of the the normal day-to-day existence it's difficult because people tend to especially nowadays i think when they read they tend to like to read in terms of gathering information rather than sitting through an experience but i definitely think it's worth it and once people Kind of get over the hurdle of the the bizarre nature of the language, and once they get into the story, you'll find. I think a lot of times people will find the bizarre and the uh, the unreal aspect of the prose will find a way where people can sit with it and, and breathe with it for sure. There are a lot of times where surrealism plays a big part in the writing, and other times where I'm just telling a story and uh, in a, in, a, in a more much more naturalistic and straightforward way so the, the writing isn't always bizarre. Like there's a lot of times a story is being told just as a story, but yes, for certainly surrealism is definitely, you know, one of my favorite writers was, uh, a, a, a guy named L'Otremont and he's sort of considered to be the, um, the godfather of surrealism, uh, Andre Breton and, and all his, his crew, you know, really looked to Lautremont's book, uh, the, the songs of Moldawar. Uh, I, I might be butchering the pronunciation of these French names, but uh,
1: I won't be able to do any better, so <laughs> don't
3: worry. <laughs> These surrealists that came like in the 1920s and a little bit early, but basically after World War One, were heavily influenced by this book. It was either called The Songs of Moldova or The Chants of Moldova and it was written by this guy named uh, Lautremont, completely obscure guy who came from South America as a young man in his early 20s and moved to Paris and wrote this book and really didn't really know anyone. And, uh, and then suddenly died just of the bizarre circumstances. It seems as if somebody actually murdered him. I, it was a weird thing. Like he, I think there, he, he placed some kind of weird ad and I, I don't know if it was like offering sexual favors for money or something, but it, it seems as if he might've been involved in that. And then somebody came to where he was living and, and murdered him. I think it's a, yeah, his story is very bizarre. He's, he died at a young age. I think he was like 23 and he wrote this great book, which is just monumental. And it, what's important to know is for people who know about French literature and French poetry, know people like the great, the great giants of French poetry, people like Baudelaire or uh, Arthur Rimbaud, another one of my favorites, or Mallarmé or uh, uh, Paul Verlaine or or others, the Symbolists. What's interesting to know, uh, except for Baudelaire, Le came actually before them. Like R- Rimbaud, who is, is obviously is a, is a huge impact on, on modern poetry, but uh, Lotrémont's poetry actually came before Rimbaud's. And, uh, and it's just something that uh, it, it's, I find he's a hugely important person in modern art in general. Uh, and, and hasn't quite gotten the recognition he deserves. He is recognized very much so in France, especially, and, and also I think people in the in, in interested in the occult find him interesting. But he doesn't have quite as much uh, recognition as Arthur Rimbaud does, and uh, I, I think he probably should be given that. And um, for someone like myself, who loves Austin Osman Spare, I, I dearly, and he actually plays a, an important role. And as one of the characters in this last book, I just published the divine chaos. He he's the, the guide through the, the, the land of the dead souls.
1: I love that. Fuck. Yeah. I didn't realize that. That's very cool.
3: He's definitely, to me, I figured he would be the most ideal person to have in that way. You um, think so? Okay. <laughs> I, I <laughs> And, uh, but a lot of times people like to give him credit for being like the father of chaos magic and the father of surrealism.
1: Punk rock before punk rock was a thing.
3: Yeah, you know, they get they give him credit for a lot of things, which I, I mean, I don't mind because I love him so much. I, I definitely think that when it comes to surrealism, uh, more credit should be given to L'Otremont. Uh, when it comes to surrealism, anyone who's into surrealism definitely, definitely has to check out uh, L'Otremont's book, uh, The Chance of Mulder.
1: All right. A shining endorsement. Fuck yeah. So I want to hear a little bit more about why you think Spare, because I'm obviously, most people that listen to this show probably might be familiar with Spare's work and might be you know, fans of it or whatever. He's very influential. So I want to hear a little bit more about why you chose him as a guide. And I'm just so curious.
3: Yeah. Well, so I think so for people who know, or maybe don't know, so Dante's Divine Comedy is a journey through the afterworld, through this diff- three different stages. So there's hell in the beginning, and then there's purgatory, and then there's paradise. And so Dante's large narrative poem of his journey, the first two stages he goes through, he has his guide is Virgil, who was the pagan poet during Roman times and was Dante's favorite poet, basically. So. I, when I started writing this story, I realized that like, well, so it, it's autobiographical. So it's it's my sort of journey, my personal journey through the land of the dead, and in a psychodrama kind of way, uh, which is which was true for Dante too. A lot of the, Dante's journey is, is a very personal one.
1: Oh yeah, there's if it's like full of salt. He like puts like you know his kind of people he doesn't like from like political yeah. offices and stuff in there, and there's like talking about all the horrible things that are.
3: Yeah, so there's he has he Dante definitely had a lot of grudges. He had a lot. Of, he had an axe to grind for sure. So people he didn't like, he definitely placed them in in horrible spots in the afterlife.
1: I'll and, show uh, these motherfuckers.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I tried to avoid that. Like I really tried to avoid any sort of personal vendettas I may have had against people in my life. I tried to have a more therapeutic take on it in terms of looking at personal pain as something I had to work through. So for me, why I chose Spare was that, and there's a lot of other people I could have chosen for sure, like James Joyce, I probably adore him more than Spare. Like Joyce is definitely someone who I've I've had a a longer connection to. And there's other writers, you know, Shakespeare, Well, as you know, in our personal correspondence, I
1: you have a deep and recursive interest in Shakespeare, which yeah, I find fascinating. I'm obsessed.
3: Yeah. And <laughs> yes. that's, that, that'll be my next project next year, by the way. So I'll, I've got a, another project uh, for next year, which will be about the life or the lives of, I because I've come to believe it's actually a group of authors. Uh, it was uh, Edward Dyer, Thomas North and a woman, Emilia Lanier uh, and Ben Johnson. Those are four of them. Okay. And, and, okay. and I think others too, but um
1: Hot takes for sure, probably for some people. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but, but tell me, tell me more about why you chose fair because you 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 didn't choose any of these other folks, but you did choose fair.
3: Yeah, so like, so I have these other writers who I feel I like in terms of what they created uh, were more important to me personally, and I think in terms of my own personal opinion, like greater in terms of works of art. But spare to me. I think it, it, he really struck a chord with me on a personal note just in just in terms of his personal life story being kind of like a, a, a an obscure figure kind of just continuing with his art regardless of being regardless of his obscurity and so I think I identified with that on a personal level so I wanted to pick someone who was not necessarily super famous I mean, for people in the occult, of course, they they know Austin Spare, but outside of the occult, he's still relatively obscure, and he certainly was obscure during his lifetime, as, except for the very beginning. In terms of someone who has a a confidence, regardless of the circumstances that he was in, uh, who lived in in really dire poverty and uh, uh, in obscurity, he continued ahead with a confidence which I really admired. You know, it's a big inspiration for me as someone who. You know, I think writes in, in, in pretty much relative obscurity, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I do have people around the world who uh, uh, like my work and appreciate my work, and I'm very grateful for that. But it's, he's someone that definitely continues confidently in his art and in his life, regardless of the circumstances that he's in. And so that was someone that I really wanted to have in, in my journey in the afterlife. So the character, that is, the lead character in The Divine Chaos is based on me. He's someone that I would trust, you know, that there was someone, there's a certain personal connection that I I have with with Spare. I think this is true for a lot of people. I think a lot of people like Spare because there's something about him that despite his, I I don't know if however one wants to call it, bizarre nature or odd nature or quirkiness or uh, eccentric things about him, but it's someone that you basically kind of like. So he is a likable character and someone that would seem to know what he's doing in bizarre situations like in the land of the dead, in this land called the divine chaos. Uh, in addition to that too, his neither-neither his philosophy uh, really gels well with what I was trying to express with the divine chaos. So it, the book really flips on its head the old notions of hell, purgatory, and paradise that Dante created. And that in many ways, modern notions of, life, of these three realms of the dead were enormously defined by Dante. So a lot of it is about, you know, who is good and who is bad and who is in the middle. And I I wanted to flip that stuff on its head in ways where these characters in the land of the dead, these dead souls would be not necessarily be about certain characters being punished or certain characters being rewarded, but in terms of where their psychological situation was uh, on a a soul level, where they were at in terms of maybe their obsessions, their, their desires, and not necessarily being punished for those things, but what were the results of their obsessions, which could be resulting in, in a state that would be both hellish and also blissful a lot of times. So that concept of the neither, neither, neither this, neither that was something that I really gelled with what I was trying to express in the divine chaos. So there was for the, the two reasons was that, you know, that personal level having trust in him and seeing him being able to have the confidence to be the guide going through this land. And then also his own personal philosophy of the neither-neither really jilling well with what what I was trying to express in The Divine Chaos.
1: All right, fuck yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, this sounds like a very cool book. I'm excited to check it out. Where can people find your stuff?
3: Uh, The best place to go is my website, which is uh, love-chaos.com. So L-O-V-E dot, uh, dash com. There's links to all my books on there. And, uh, so all my stories that I've written also too, there's all the books I wrote for love chaos and, uh, some music albums I did a long time ago. My dad's play is on there and, uh, interviews that I've done over the years are on there as well. But, uh, yeah, everything that I've done is on there. There's links to my social media. I have a love chaos, Facebook, uh, Facebook group. If people are into Facebook. There's that. I'm on Instagram. Those are the two places I'm on the most in terms of social media Instagram and the Love Chaos Facebook group.
1: All right. Well, fuck yeah. Derek, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Do you have any last words or questions or anything before I let you go?
3: Uh, Just that uh, for anyone that's here because they're into writing, definitely just if you're a writer yourself, if you are uh, in love with writing and it's a passion of yours, uh, just keep doing it regardless of outcome. A true writer is someone who does it for the process and for the work itself and the joy it brings, regardless of how others may perceive it. So if there's anyone listening who is a writer themselves, either starting out or in the middle of it and having their struggles and having their lack of morale or or, or feeling bad about it, if it's something that you truly deeply love, just keep doing it, regardless of what, what other people think.
1: That is good advice. Fuck yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, dude.
3: Thank you, Luxa. I really appreciate you having me on here. I, I love talking about writing and hopefully uh, people will dig it and uh, we'll check the stuff out and also check out people I mentioned too.
1: All right. Thanks so much to Derek Hunter. I think that was good advice about doing what you do for the joy of doing it labor ipse voluptas, right? The pleasure is in the work itself. I think it's a way to really sit in one's power as a creator because you're not necessarily holding yourself to the standards of others by trying to get their approval or whatever. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said that your master is the person who controls that which you have your heart set on or wish to avoid. So if you're trying to create for the sake of pleasing others, that's okay, but we need to remember that this also gives those others a lot of power over us. It's worth examining if this is preferable. So I think that somebody from history who really sort of exemplified the idea of creating for one's own sake on one's own terms, as well as exploring interesting topics like occultism and autoeroticism, without really giving too much of a fuck about what his peers or his society thought about it, was Austin Osmond Spare. Like many people who share some of my interest, Austin Azen Spare has been an important figure for me. I've gotten a lot from reading some of his writing, dense and perhaps convoluted though it may be. And his visual art is absolutely fucking bonkers. Really, really cool stuff. Since Derek chose Spare to be his Virgil, let's hear a little snippet about self-love from the Focus of Life by Spare. The connotation self-love is applicable to all things. To it, all things are equal the destroyer of devotees, lover of all things unique, giving overflow to all who are indifferent to wranglers, who jest at doctrines of emancipation and celibacy and vertuperation. I declare this self-pleasure alone is free of theism, the disenthrallment of God and the distractions of ego in the many entities of existence I show. Ye who praise truth, thereby causing its necessity, are compelled to live differently. Out of this afterthought of belief, thrives this psalm amulating generation of unpleasured fools, liars, and homicides ever bewildered by good and evil. (laughs) All right, spicy stuff. Love it. I'll be back a little bit later to read to you the scripture of the Green Mushroom Project's 23 Bibliomancy Experiment and to let you know about some of the cool stuff that we have in the works for the project. But now, let's return to the rest of my chat with Melissa Madara. This is switching gears just a little bit, but could you tell us a little bit about the
2: feast that you host at Catland? Sure. I mean, because of COVID, it's been a minute since we've been able to do these. I've had them at some other spaces, too. But in the past, the way we've done it is we've hosted you know, events where people can come. They'll usually buy a ticket for a dinner. They'll come and sit and be led through an experience, usually with ritual components and, of course, with multiple courses of food. I usually like to keep it kind of tasting style because that will stretch out the dinner experience. And it gives you more kind of narrative to play with, which... Mm you know i also lead our full moon rituals at catland so i'm someone who's very interested in for lack of a better term ritual performance and leading people through rituals and and you know the various states contained within them and i feel like when we have a like a long drawn out tasting dinner there's enough stages and different points where we can do something that'll almost look like that where we're, you know, leading people through a narrative experience around the context of a feast.
1: I love that. I'm so interested in attending one of these. It sounds so enticing.
2: Yeah, it's been a good long while since I've been able to do it. We're hoping to be able to bring them back probably next spring. But it's just been one of those things where I've got to have enough time on my hands to be able to to cook that much i'm doing it though and that's the problem i always make these one of my like weird little hobbies is i write these insanely ambitious just completely unhinged tasting menus that i'll never make and so i have a lot of them on hand based around different you know ritual feasts different devotional holidays different solstices and equinoxes i'm always inspired by that stuff and i kind of just always want to take a look at it through the lens of food and those ritual dinners are a great place for us to do that
1: I love that. And I love that spirit of like unbridled ambition, right? Like, of
2: like. <laughs> Creative work, right? Creative work should just be unbridled, I think. <laughs> Fuck
1: yeah. So, and the other thing I was hoping to ask you about was the incense. Could you kind of talk us through the process that you like to go through, like when you're creating an incense blend or when you're like maybe writing a ritual for creating one?
2: Sure, yeah. Um, So are you talking about the incense blends in my book? Or any of them, any that you would like to speak on. I mean, I do so much incense stuff. I feel like that's the part of my practice where people can really clock me as someone who like does ancient Greek magic is like, wow, there's a lot of incense involved like yeah that's that's me it's ancient greek all the way down um so yeah there's even a couple of incense recipes in the book and i recommend them as fumigations for consecration rituals i recommend them as sort of like part of creating the the proper ritual space for certain feasts and stuff incense is again a huge part of the magic work that i do it's also a great way to work with plants in a magical setting uh making a substance that can be fully customizable to whatever ritual it is that you're doing uh so when you learn how to make it and make it well you can make it very quickly uh you can make it fully tailored to what it is you needed to do uh and that's something that i i just love doing we were also talking about volatiles earlier and all you know the smelly smells of witchcraft i love the smelly smells uh fragrance is half of food uh, and Mm -hmm. it's so important to the stuff that I do. So I'm very interested in, in fragrance uh, as a magical tech. But I make a ton of it. Uh, I make it both for my Etsy and I make it for the classes that I teach. I, I produce recipes for incense all the time. Most of the stuff that I make is in the very, very ancient way of making incense, which is the hand-rolled incense pearls. The kind of stuff you would have seen you know, in ancient Greece through the Middle Ages in Europe. Very labor-intensive, but produces a very nice finished product
1: yeah, and there's something like cool about tactilely producing it yourself.
2: Yeah, I do a lot of small batch incense making, uh, specifically, mostly for my needs throughout the years. But now that, you know, I have this little Etsy shop, I'm beginning to do a little bit more. And I've been developing some some techniques for incense making that I don't see a lot of other people doing, uh, like being able to wash all of your botanicals in like resin tincture and stuff. It's been a lot of fun to experiment with and see, like, how do we bring these smells out and how do we you know, open up these plants and let them like give up their volatiles for us and for our magic? Yeah, it's been years of experimentation and never ends. Fun all the way down.
1: Yeah, and another thing I really appreciated—you mentioned in your book, like about you know, sort of these ethical harvesting guidelines for foraging for herbs and stuff—and that's something that I think that we, you know, we should be talking about in the magical community. You know, we're using all these things, but like we really do need to make sure that we're doing it in a sustainable and ethical way because there's all kinds of uh, places where that's not happening, and, and I'm sure nobody would want that to be part of what they're doing in their magic, you know?
2: totally yeah and i think so much of that stuff is unconscious i think people just really aren't thinking about it there's a lot of discussions about green witchcraft right now everyone wants to be working with plants everyone wants to feel closer to nature but no one's talking about what it means to do that in the anthropocene what it means to do that amidst a dying climate you know what is is how can we relate to the spirit of the earth in a land that we are actively destroying that i am taking part in every day destroying you know what i mean yeah so it, that those ethical approaches and discussing You know, what does it mean to honorably harvest? This is old stuff that, you know, hasn't been part of, I think, like, you know, witchcraft consciousness for a good long period, uh, you know, last hundred years or so. And now we're seeing it start to come back as people are starting to take that kind of critical look at, at green witchcraft and go, wait, wait, like, I feel like there needs to be a deeper level here. or I feel like there's incongruence between the idea of me connecting to nature here in my head and the actual realities of the nature that is in front of me, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, one touchstone for this is a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, which oh. is a really cool yeah kind of look at you know how we fit into things as humans as being part of this system and also uh, this sort of blending of this like ancient Native knowledge with botanical understandings and ecological understandings—it's great, great resource for people who are interested. I would highly recommend it. So yeah,
2: yeah, super good. That book is great, and I feel like I don't know if she brings this up or if it's just like additional stuff, but uh, I talk a lot about Enrique Salmon's idea of concentric ecology. He's got a great article about that that came out a few years ago, where he talks about how in uh, indigenous cultures there's this concept of you and the landscape and all the being around beings around you as being part of one system of Kin, you're all family. You're all related. You're all of one origin, made of the same substance. And how systems of relation to the ecology that are set up this way, as opposed to how they're set up in the West, which is like objectifying or adversarial to nature, Mm -hmm. sets the culture up for sustainability—not just ecological sustainability, but also sustainability of people on the land. People are making sure that they're able to live there longer. They take care of the land that it can feed them longer. Like it, you know, grows more trees to shelter them longer. And it's set up for for long term mutual benefit as opposed to, you know, non indigenous cultures who don't have kin relationships to, you know, the natural world. And we end up with, you know, what we've ended up with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if we look at it from a very basic, just kind of scientific understanding, I mean, there is a sort of genetic basis for that being the case. I mean, we're all, all life in some way is related on Earth, as far as we understand it. So yes.
2: Yeah, totally. You know, the more I read about anthropology and, uh, you know, indigenous religion, the more I'm realizing, and I'm seeing this in a couple of different places, you know, in the last few years, how much indigenous wisdom is now being verified scientifically Mm -hmm. I've been seeing this a little bit with this one researcher I follow, Monica Gagliano, who does a lot of work with plant intelligence. And she's working with Aboriginal groups in Australia going, hey, wait, like, you guys knew some stuff about plant intelligence that I am only now discovering. How is that possible? And in Australia in Costa Rica in Brazil in North America the answer is every single time the plants told us mm-hmm. so there's this like deeper like level of relationship that's being had to the landscape that we not having that kin perspective are being robbed of
1: yeah absolutely there's a lot that's being missed.
2: I teach about this all the time. You know, all my green witch classes, all my green magic classes open with like 20 to 30 minutes of me doing philosophy of green magic, which is introducing people to these ideas and being like, so we're not going to objectify plants, right? So we're not going to objectify nature. We're going to think about it in a different way. Because I think to do magic with nature, we kind of have to, you know, decenter the human will, the human ego, the human drive and, you know, I don't know. Uh, I use the concentric model quite a bit. I find it very, very helpful for my practice.
1: Hell yeah. And I think that there's definitely been a big sort of like rise in an animist perspective among the occult community in recent years, which I think is um, definitely a cool thing in terms of like contextualizing things as, you know, how can we form these like beneficial mutualistic relationships as opposed to these like weird Parasitic ones, or these adversarial ones, or whatever we've contextualized it as, because when we really look at these systems closer, that's not the case. It's not this like, uh, you know. I think there's a lot of contextualizations of looking at nature as being like a, a battlefield. It's like a war, and, and I've, you know, even in studying ecology, I've I've had professors say like, you know, the interactions between plants and insects is like chemical warfare. And to some extent, that's true. But to other extents, there's other interesting things happening in in mutualistic ways. So to just kind of focus on this adversarial thing really leaves a lot out of the equation. So yeah.
2: Completely, yeah. I mean, even when you think about like the biblical setup of putting man in adversarial relationship, that you must subdue wilderness in order to sanctify the world. There is, again, yeah, this complete turning away from the communal uh, aspects of nature and the mutualistic aspects of nature uh, and only sort of focusing on the 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 warfare and the adversary aspect and I get that that's a trauma response I get that that is you know people who have lived fighting nature you know not in cities for a very long time Mm. but I don't think it's an accurate depiction of the human nature relationship and I, I do like that you know in the west we're reintroducing people to to these ideas of living in relationship with the land yeah you're totally right and I just think that like just getting those ideas in people's heads is transformative enough especially where we're at ecologically right now
1: yeah absolutely. Okay, so is there anything that I didn't ask you about today that you would like to talk about?
2: Oh geez, I'm trying to think if there is, but no, I mean, you know what your listeners are most interested in. You know what you know you all want to talk about. so so you know better than I do. I can't um, speak I- for them, I don't know. <laughs> Fair, so fair. No, I mean, we talked so much about the book and its process. Um, we haven't talked much about Catland, but I think a lot of people know a lot about Catland.
1: Well, I, well I, I'd like to hear a little bit about Catland. Like if I come to visit New York and I go to Catland and perhaps if I'm lucky enough to catch one of your feasts, like what would that be like
2: for me? Oh, yeah. Well, so Catland looks completely different now than it did pre pandemic. We actually expanded during that time, which is wild to me. But the bar next to us unfortunately folded during the pandemic. And weirdly enough, it's the same landlord for both buildings. And they were like, why don't you knock down the wall? So we did. So now Catland has, you know, more than tripled in size. Uh, we've got a wonderful apothecary bar now. And our event space has only just reopened to the public. We've only started doing markets again the last few months. So we are completely different than we. were pre-pandemic hopefully in the future you'll be able to join us for ritual dinners in our garden which we're renovating this spring we've always had a a courtyard garden but now it's actually going to be open to the public and we're going to have enough space back there to like actually have dinners and rituals and stuff like that so you'd be out in the garden you'd be you know able to go inside and peruse the various occult tomes which are lovely we might even be using some of the herbs and the flowers that are there in the garden I go a lot of things that you know I use in my own practice and we've got a really thriving community community of witches there which is i think like the best part of coming to catland is that we've got a really bustling community the shop's always busy there's always people talking about magic and always people discussing magical ideas at the very least asking questions at the counter there's a lot of like good conversation happening within the space so once events return and my dinners return that's the part that i am most excited to share with people hopefully if you do ever come visit that's the part that you get to see
1: well it sounds delightful i definitely hope to do that thank you so in addition. To books, like what other things can people find at Catland?
2: Catland has a pretty vast array of things. We we mostly sell magical tools and books. So you're not going to find a lot of things like statuary or devotional objects there, but you will find a really wide array of tarot decks, a really wide array of, of candles and herbs. And I think we're now doing 300 herbs behind the counter. Uh, we've got a library that has, I think last I checked, over 1,000 titles. You know, a lot of indie zines, a lot of stuff you won't find in other places. Like our magazine and other small Brooklyn publications, you know, small zines that are published by our staff that you won't see distributed anywhere else. So it kind of like it's a very big store. It has a lot of space and square footage, but it has this like indie maker shop feel uh, because we do try to feature a lot of tiny brands and show you a lot of things that you're not going to be able to find in other places. We really try to set ourselves apart that way. So it's not going to look like any other, you know, metaphysical shop you've been to no chakra flags in the window or anything like that but staff is friendly happy to answer your questions vibe is cool a lot of places to like sit and chill and read a book and uh yeah a wide variety of stuff but something for everybody hopefully
1: i fucking love it it sounds amazing i have to ask are there cats
2: there there was a cat uh, named william s Berg, who <laughs> used to live in the shop but the amount of people coming in and out made him really really anxious and he started to on the books which oh. is not ideal and that's not mutually beneficial yeah. so he now lives with our friend alice so he's got he's just he's retired a more chill life for him without all the hustle and bustle <laughs> Actually, an early retirement and now he's on his ass he's happy <laughs> uh, we've, we've considered bringing cats back on over the years but uh we're always too worried about freaking them out um yeah that but, totally
1: makes sense
2: for sure We yeah, might get a snake though i've been trying to get us a, a shop snake for a Ooh. while no one will do it but I, I'm I love pushing.
1: that for you all. That sounds great. Well, Melissa, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight. Are there any questions that you have for me?
2: Not at all. Um, is there anything that you wanted to ask that you haven't had a chance to? I'm sure that going
1: back over this, I'll have a million questions <laughs> and perhaps I'll email you. But as it stands now, I feel that you've been very generous with your time and uh, sharing your ideas and like, Yeah, I'm just so excited for the listeners to check out your book. Please everybody do that because it's very cool. And there's a lot, even if you're not into cooking, per se, there's a lot in there that you're going to get out of it just by experiencing the possibility of cooking. (laughs) Because there's a lot of cool background and a lot of cool context for all of these things. So yeah. So if people want to check out your classes, your book, Calan, any of it, where can they find your stuff?
2: Totally, yeah. Uh, so I hate social media. You can't find me on there mostly, except for on Instagram, where you can find me at Saint Jane. Uh, I've got a website, which is the same title as my book, The Witch's Feast, where I've got you know some blog posts, some shared recipes, things like that. Uh, you can find my classes at Catland. I also teach at How to Witch in Salem and Ritual Craft in Denver. And other than that, you know, I float around. I, I do events here and there. Uh, I do pop ups, you know, all over Brooklyn. So if you keep in touch with me through Instagram or through TikTok, you can see you know all the updates and stuff that are going on
1: okay well very cool fuck yeah and i will definitely put links to all of that stuff in the show notes for folks well melissa thank you so much this has been fantastic yeah really looking forward to trying out some of these recipes once i can become more motivated to start cooking again
2: <laughs> yes please tag me i love seeing people's recipes i love seeing what people do with them uh always excited to see that stuff if you do cook anything please keep you posted
1: Hell yeah! So, do you have any last words of advice or anything like that for our listeners?
2: Keep reading books and read better books. So <laughs> that's I'm such a hater, uh, but. You know what- <laughs> I- Seller, I'm sorry. I can't help it. That's all the air placements. Uh, there's just no right, I'm book. here for it. Your books are garbage. But um, you know, my friend Coleman put out a t-shirt a few months ago or a few years ago that said, uh, like, most occult books are fraudulent or something like that. And as an occult <laughs> bookseller, we've got a lot of, you know, absolute backwash on the market right now. And there's a lot of, but there's, it's easy to find good scholarly occult research. If you've been feeling like the stuff you're reading has been watered down for a little too long dm me on instagram email catland we've got recommendations for you but there are good occult books out there they're a little bit harder to find i don't know my advice for occultists everywhere is literally always just to keep reading the books there are there are too many of them and you got to make the stack smaller somehow
1: (laughs) (laughs) i love that fuck yeah okay we'll keep reading books melissa thank you so much for hanging out with me this evening this has been an absolute pleasure of course yeah have a good night lux thank you so much Okay, fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Melissa. You can find The Witch's Feast, a kitchen grimoire, wherever fine books are sold. And check out the show notes for their link tree to see all of the awesome stuff that Melissa has going on. Thanks also to Derek Hunter. Check out The Divine Chaos, available at lovechaos.com. There will be a link to that in the show notes as well. So there's lots of cool stuff coming down the line here at the Lux Occult podcast. I had a really fun and informative conversation with Jason Miller recently about his new book, Consorting with Spirits, and that will be coming out around this time next month. Before then, I'm very excited to be bringing you a special Halloween slash episode featuring a conversation with Britt from Primordia Podcast, as well as a chat I had with Flood from XV Planis. Both of these folks are into spooky shit. And to celebrate the season, we sit down and discuss the topic of fear and our relationships to it. We also talk about ghost hunting or paranormal investigations and some of the historical technology that folks have used in the past in attempts to contact the other side. Uh, Both Primordia and XV Planets podcasts are members of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Don't miss all of our great shows, including Ad Hoc History, Administrism, Grognostics, Smuts Up, and Unearthing Paranormalcy. You can hear a conversation that I had with Dave, Amy, and Chad about chaos magic that episode is out and available now, and there will be a link to it in the show notes. So if you like the show and you are into what I'm doing here, please consider joining the Patreon, in which case you can take a bibliobancy break with me. There are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will there. Another great way to support the show is to write a review or give it some stars. That's supposedly one of the most important things in terms of helping other people find it. And all of the advertising for this is done by word of mouth, so tell your friends, your lovers, your enemies, your frenemies, and your bitter rivals about it, or post about it on social media, which I suppose is like doing all of that at once. I don't know. (laughs) I really appreciate all the support people have shown. It means a lot to me to be able to be doing this and making this show and everything, and it would not be possible without all of your support, so thank you so much. Much gratitude. Okay, as promised, here's an update about what we've got planned for the Green Mushroom Project. We'll be meeting again on the 23rd of this month to conduct another exercise involving the 23 Bibliomancy Experiment. For some background here, this is something that sort of came to me as being an interesting thing to try in order to produce a corpus of scripture for the project, like a you know little mini-bible or whatever. People were asked to come to the rituals with whatever book they intuitively felt wanted to be included basically um and after we did some stuff to get mentally kind of synced up we entered the 23rd line of the 23rd page into a spreadsheet and each rolled a d100 or a couple of 10-sided dice in order to find out what order the lines would appear in so we ran five iterations of this beginning on the 23rd of may of this year And while this was going on, I was creating different iterations of a Sound Magic track, which I mixed using samples that had 23 in their names. So each month, we would add a new voice reading the previous month's verse aloud, and then put this in as part of the track, and then listen to the track as part of the ritual. So that's what we've been up to there. Um, I'll be reading you what we came up with in just a second here. I wanted to let you know that we're going to be meeting again on the 23rd of this month to go into the next phase of this exercise. In this part of it, we're each going to ritually create, or create in the context of ritual, a short response to the scripture and bring it to our gathering on the 23rd. So then once we have everything everybody has written combined, we're going to go ahead and enter it into an electronic cut-up generator tool and make a cut up of it and see what we get. So thanks so much to Shane for approaching me with the idea of having us write something in response to the scripture. I love that. And thanks also to Matt at Kaestro for providing us with the cut up tool that we'll be using for this. Uh, There's a bunch of fun and free tools available there at that site, so check it out. We're going to be doing a special fungal Friday celebration on the 28th to celebrate the project's second birthday. The themes of this thing are going to be transgression, transformation, and transcendence. We're going to be honoring and inviting the dead to the party, as well as giving a nod and saying farewell to a fallen god brought down by the despicable actions of his supposed followers. Remember that all is never as it seems, as we prepare what we will ritually sacrifice on the altars of our own self-sovereignty. It should be a fun and wild night, so come check that out if you're interested. Dave from Unearthing Paranormalcy Podcast has been running some planetary rituals for us, which have been very cool. The next one will be for Saturn and it will happen on November 5th, stoked about that. So if any of this sounds interesting, you are more than welcome to come check it out. Hit me up if you would like a link to our Discord server. So I'm going to go ahead and take us out by reading the 23 Bibliomancy scripture. But before I do, I'm going to go ahead and read the Green Mushroom Project Statement of Resistance and light a candle with the hypho sigil. And hopefully this will add an element of utility in case people want to use this recording as part of their ritual in terms of writing a response to the scripture and bringing it to the next iteration. So remember to resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path to better times. Fuck yeah. All right, let's get into the Green Mushroom Project 23 Bibliomancy Scripture. She sees nothing around her but ghost fragments of the brightness of what she has lost. I shall face a battle I know not. Plunder as long as they live, which is practically forever. The electronic age is a world in which causes and effects become almost interchangeable, as in music structures. Building and development. Capacity building is seen as a key strategy to sustain. The Chi state has a reputation for cowardice. Earls of Mercia and Northumbria. Counterfeit worlds. Some are real worlds as well as deranged private worlds. The Athamarga is the sole ruler over all plants. Carlos and Bella Lugosi, whose voices he totally appropriated, I, glass need not be expensively etched to be beautiful. Two. Of course, my love, with all you do, Fanny, and when you are with another being's mind, you are that being's mind. Female ones, and this over-masculinization has had a profound adrenaline. I'm slouched on the couch, which is less the fault of my from a typical rabbit of a million years ago or the typical rabbit. Magic is anarchic wild and anti-structural. It's agrifa's the occulta philosophia and the grimoires allegedly from, who or what put it all together? In the direction of fulfilling a goal that may still only be innerworldly. Type, the letters cluster together, and again you must go at the poke. I will not say to the court of Diogenes, for he had no court, great or small. Their axioms to keep them from implying statements that contra. So yell if you don't understand something. My and meaning are revealed directly to the dreamer. On a global, at the touch of a switch, the dreaming library was brilliantly illuminated. Book three. All 1998 Brindle 2006 the biomechanics of closed-chained exercises mean that multiple, liquid wax, he shaped and smoothed the wax, thus concealed, has begun to wilt. The name of this city in Spanish is the City of Angels, he wrote in is this ever-present possibility of social shaming that is the motive of force, of ship. He started to run, I don't want to know, I don't want to see, I, Us have chosen to deepen our spiritual journeys by pursuing initiatory work. I alluded earlier to the problem of speed, but this also is a problem. Then the priest shall put these curses in writing and wash them off into the waters of bitterness. Book four, Zoe met eyes with the worried para, then returned her naturally, since we're talking about creating A, the seven sets of six letter combinations comprising the 40, the situation and successfully replaced or overcome the existing fire, Callie said. But I really am stumped. What does possibly hardwired into the souls of some that actually enriches and clean that it appeared to have just been washed? Eight, the goddess strife is treated unjustly by the immortals, for they do not want near Walget where the eagle eyes are two deep holes in the the thyroid cartilage is the rather large structure that forms the Adam's apple, reiterate that they have to be understood as coming in degrees along a sliding, a powerful conjuration. The angel Tatsikil appears to the conjurer. 5. Eloquence, most necessary to gain your ends or maintain. On the night of the dark moon, while you are sitting quietly at your dark, can you trust the silent knowing in serving others? Try to remove the suffering of other people. Once you, to dissolve the sugar, loosely cover with a lid and set aside to create the space for the journey to occur. Our creation stories, the origins of strawberries is important. Skywomans, all of us, knowers of sacrifice, cleanse their defilements by practice. Concinomancy, divination by a sieve suspended on shears. Transgender news since gay and mainstream media didn't cover it. Whom had long titles and honorifics both before and output from an AI. It's sort of a dossier on Mitchell, with a, My bag cause they're so new. Figured I'd give it up if anyone asked. Nobody said a, Outer Planet Transit that it accompanies, but the event cannot be described without the stigma of having abandoned his parents and his ancestors. But this is preferable to an isolated existence. Lonely, bounded by a high brick wall. <laughs> Alright, fuck yeah. Thanks again to Melissa Madara and Derek Hunter. And thank you for listening to LexiCult Podcast. This is Luxa Scott reminding you to stay strong and stay fucking curious.
0: LexiCult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com. I'm Steve. And I'm Jason. And we're the hosts of Grognostics, the podcast. Take a journey down the rabbit hole with us as we investigate some of life's most intriguing mysteries while sampling some of the country's finest craft beers. Some topics would include UFOs. What the
3: heck was that? What?
0: Oh, that spaceship. I got some sound effects for our promo. Pretty sweet, huh? Uh,
3: it's a little annoying, actually. Where was I? Uh, UFOs. Oh, uh, the disappearance of the Roanoke colony. Seriously, Steve? foreign accent
0: syndrome reincarnation uh mediums and psychics nothing well that's better cosmic quandaries sex in the ancient world okay that's it i'm done you can find the show on spotify apple podcast stitcher and wherever you get your podcast that's grognostics g-r-o-g-n-o-s-t-i-c-s What scares you? Ghosts. Aliens. Monsters. The occult. Conspiracies. Some of you like to be scared, and Unearthing Paranormalcy is for you. Some of you try everything you can to avoid it. Unearthing Paranormalcy is for you. We take the topics that scare some, and we dig in to find the source, then present the history to make the paranormal a little more normal. We also throw in a bit of comedy to shed a light on some of the darkness in the world. So whether you're scared of bumps in the night, what's inside your own mind, or strange lights in the sky, we cover it all. We dig in and present all that we find and try to come up with some logical, and not so logical, reasons for the high strangeness happenings. Sometimes we are scared of the things we don't understand. And the more we understand, the less we fear. So find us, Unearthing Paranormalcy, on your favorite podcast app. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at UMPNormalcy. And until next time, keep digging.